All right, psychology nerds, welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, psychologist and anger researcher and host of Psychology and Stuff, and I have a super great episode for you inspired by my youngest son. First, though, I want to ask you to do two things for me. First, if you like psychology and stuff, go and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. Second, as importantly, if you like this show, I hope you'll go give my new show, Cannonball, with co-host Chuck Ryback a listen. Chuck and I talk about those things that we consider or should consider canonical from across disciplines. From music to art to literature to video games, we cover it all by bringing in the experts. Our first episode went live last week with Dr. Brian Carr, and we talked about Super Mario Brothers as a canonical video game. It was a ton of fun, and I think you'll enjoy it quite a bit. With that, I want to get to the backstory here for today's episode. So about two weeks ago, I was in my office teaching my online psych course, and my son, who was seven at the time, said to me, Dad, I have something for you for your class. And he then went on and unloaded some pretty great insight for me, and I asked him to actually tell me again so I could record it and play it for you all. All right, so just a second ago, how are you, by the way? Good. Good. So just a second ago, you and I were having a conversation. I was teaching my online class, and you had something you wanted me to tell my students. Do you remember what it was? It was so when you if you listen to music, do you know that that a fireworks happening in your brain? And if you play music, it's even more healthy for your brain, and it can make you smarter, and it can also make you healthier. And where did you learn that, young man? I learned it in music class. You learned it in your music class? All right. So we're going to investigate this further, okay? Okay. Yeah. Now here to talk about that more with us is Dr. Daniel Semenza. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminal Justice at Rutgers University, Camden. He's the author of a 2018 article titled Feeling the Beat and Feeling Better, Musical Experience, Emotional Reflection, and Music as Technology of Health. Here is that interview. Tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, how you became interested in this line of work. Yeah, so uh, the I grew up as uh, being very interested in music from a young age. I was taking piano lessons from the time I was eight or nine years old and uh, was a musician all throughout uh, high school and college. I played in a lot of rock bands, uh, bass and piano and guitar and uh, it was a big part of my life a big part of my adolescence growing up and so when I finished undergrad I kind of had to make a call as to what I wanted to do and graduate school seemed like something that was going to make a lot of sense but I hadn't really studied sociology in undergrad I had actually studied advertising and all my teachers were getting frustrated with me because I didn't really want to learn how to advertise I was just being very critical of advertisers and what they were doing to the world uh, at the time. And so I decided to go into uh, the sociology master's program at the New School uh, for Social Research in New York City. And there I did my master's thesis on how musicians uh, kind of staked their claim and created legitimacy in the subway scene. You know, so how you could be a street musician and work in the subways and make a living. Um, and I interviewed a ton of them. And decided to then pursue that further and go to graduate school uh, to be a musical sociologist, so to speak, and to continue studying that. 
Uh, and I ended up going much more the way of criminology and the sociology of health and illness um, and kind of turned away from it. But music has always been very big and important for me. And in my early years of grad school, I did some research and, and wrote this paper looking specifically at trying to tie how people use music in their everyday lives to improve their own well-being um, and their own mental health. And so it really stemmed from a very personal area and kind of moved into more of a professional thing that I kind of have kept on the back burner for the last few years, but is still very important to me. Well, that is really cool. I always love kind of hearing people's origin stories that way. You know, how, do, how did you kind of find your way into this line of work? I think so often it is kind of rooted in those, um, you know, experiences growing up uh, that, uh, you know, you, you find yourself interested in because it was personal to you. Um, and then, you know, find ways to kind of more formally study that. I, I want to come back to the the subway scene piece in a little bit. I'm really curious about that work and kind of what you found. But um, before we get there, I guess I wanted to start it. So I mentioned this to you off air that uh, I was uh, teaching uh, my online abnormal psych course, and my son, who was sitting in the room behind me, seven years old, he um, I guess now eight. He's going to listen to this and get mad at me if I call him seven. But at the time, <laughs> he was seven, <laughs> and he. Uh, he um, saw what I was teaching, and he came up and said, oh, hey, I've got something for your class, and uh, told me this thing about, you know, how listening to music, fireworks are happening in your brain. It makes you smarter and healthier. And I thought, you know what? I should unpack that further. So I, I recorded him saying it, uh, or asked him to say it again, and I recorded it. And then I went to, you know, Psych Info, and I found this 2018 article uh, that you wrote, Um and uh, I'm going to mention the name here. It's Feeling the Beat and Feeling Better, Musical Experience, Emotional Reflection, and Music as a Technology of Health. And I guess what I – so I wrote to you and said, hey, can we we talk about this? I'm hoping maybe you can kind of break down that study for our listeners. You know, what did, what did you do? What did you – you know, why did you do this? What did you find? That sort of thing. Yeah, sure. Um, really, the idea of the study came when I was first – learning how to be a researcher, right? And first learning how to take uh, a research question that I had based off of what I wanted to learn or what I perceived as something that was lacking in uh, formal scholarly literature and trying to really carve out a piece of understanding uh, and, and do something unique that had been done before, which as a, a pretty young grad student at the time was a pretty daunting task because I was just kind of getting a lot of the tools to pull this stuff together. And so my graduate advisor at the time, Tim Dowd, who is a, a sociologist of music, he had really encouraged me to try and draw on my personal understanding of the world to ask a question and then kind of go to the data that might be available to answer that. And so that's where a lot of the the personal experience came from for the study is because I had grown up and music was such a big part of not just playing in a band, uh, but how I made friends, uh, how I modulated my kind of everyday feelings. Um, I grew up playing a lot of rock and punk music and uh, part of the emo scene, which was kind of very much built around emotional lyrics and emotional music. And so I wanted to understand, okay, well, what, what kind of literature is out there about how people really use music on an everyday basis? And there's plenty of research and literature that you could go and you can look into 
uh, music therapy literature. You could look at some of the research on health outcomes. There's been research to show that um, listening to music can uh, fend off depression. It can help with uh, improving post-surgery outcomes. And there's been different kind of trials to look at that stuff. But there hadn't been a ton of research to really break down what people do on a day-to-day basis. And so what I ended up coming across was uh, this researcher, Tia Denora, who is at the University of Exeter, and she does all this great work on kind of documenting and following people around how they employ music in their everyday lives and when they listen to it and what it does for them and what they can, uh, you know, kind of do to make themselves feel better using music. And people had done and looked at that from interviews and kind of observing, but people had never done it from a quantitative kind of big, bigger data standpoint. And so that was kind of the background of what made me think, okay, let me go find a way to try and answer this question to, to some regard. Um, what I ended up doing was doing some reading on Denora's theory. And she talks about this great concept of uh, music as a technology of the self and that listening to music and uh, weaving music into your everyday life is really a way that people form identity and people kind of uh, use as a tool to uh, help themselves make feel feel better, uh, to reflect on their own emotions, to think about their day, to calm themselves down, to hype themselves up. Uh, you know, if you really think about it intuitively, the way that you're excited to go somewhere and you're trying to amp yourself up and you turn the music up louder on the radio because you love this specific song and you're getting really jacked or uh, you're feeling bummed and you turn to a totally different kind of song to help yourself uh, feel better. That's really what I was trying to take a look at. And Denora uses this idea not just as a technology of self, but she actually talks about uh, technology of health, that music can make us feel better and uh, really modulate our feelings and emotions. And so I found this great data set uh, that was collected at the at Princeton uh, called the 1999 Arts and Religious Survey, which was really designed to get at how people integrated arts and religion into their daily lives, um, and it was co- collected kind of as a uh, nationally representative sample. And I used that to try and look at, okay, well, how does how do people kind of use music and kind of uh, what what leads people towards a perceived effectiveness of music as a coping strategy? And then how do people use music uh, for emotional reflection? And what are some of the, the big predictors of this? Uh, and so that's kind of the core crux of the study. And ultimately, what I find uh, in the study is that uh, having kind of greater education and aesthetic disposition, so being more used to music in your everyday lives, leads people to kind of think about using music more often to cope with problems that they might be having. And when people are more likely to use music in these ways to cope with everyday situations, uh, they're also more likely to be more emotionally reflective and to kind of think back on their day uh, and use music is this kind of strategy. Uh, so those are kind of the core findings and the underpinnings of what I was looking at. That's really fascinating. Actually, uh, this this happened to me this morning. In fact, I'm a I'm a an avid podcast listener, which probably won't surprise people. But I <laughs> was um, 
I was listening to something. It was like a sports recap for the weekend. And about five minutes into my commute, I said, I've got a big day and this isn't what I need right now. And, you know, switch to something more upbeat and a little bit more fun um, in that way. And so, um, I mean, you know, there are, it's interesting to think about the ways in which people intentionally do that, but also sometimes maybe even unintentionally, you know, where they're not necessarily thinking exactly the way I was, but, um, but, but, and I you think, know, I think you use that term you use kind of like, this isn't what I need right now. I love that. And that really taps into this because I think people often unconsciously to your point will do this. They really like, right. I need faster, upbeat, exciting music, or I really need to yep. chill out right now and I need to bring it down a level, or I need to throw on piano music with no vocals so I can help myself write or be more reflective or whatever it is. And so it really is, I think, when you talk to a lot of people and when you re- read interviews that Denora and some others have done, they talk about it not as just like a want or some kind of product of music that they consume passively, but it's very much a a need or desire. And, and I love that there's this kind of importance um, in for a lot of people's lives with music. Yeah, that uh, I I do too. I think that is really interesting. It really speaks to. I mean, I'm, I'm, I find myself wondering the the degree to which um, researchers have looked at kind of the relationship between emotional intelligence and the use of music. You know, that one of the the core elements of emotional intelligence is your ability to use your emotions, um, and you know, to, to kind of get yourself in a mood that you want to be in. But ultimately, some of that is you know, could be how how do you use music to, to get yourself in that mood, um, which would be, I think, intriguing. Um, before we start talking kind of more broadly, anything else you want to say about that specific study? Um, anything else you found that you think is worth mentioning? I think with that study, those are kind of the the key takeaways um but with with any study there were you know just limitations as to what you could measure using a pre-existing survey and so to your point about there is really this opportunity and i still think it's very much out there about trying to quantify a little bit better how the relationship between emotional intelligence and uh, musical use and if you could find a better way to chronicle the different things people do with music on a day-to-day basis, not just turning it up and down and not just kind of employing it, but also, you know, going and singing in a church choir, or, you know, belting it out in the shower, whatever it might be, if you could look really more intimately at those micro interactions, kind of document them and play that into musical or excuse me, emotional intelligence. Um, I think that's a real opportunity. It's just pretty limited because there's only so many surveys and things out there that really measure how people do this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting. There are some places where it feels, and this is purely just anecdotal reflecting on my own life and people I know, but you know, you think there are, there are lots of exam. I mean, I see people using music to get sort of geared up for sports all the time. You know that mm-hmm. that is a real. I mean, whether it's in the locker room or on the drive to the to the game or whatever, that there are. That's a very clear way in which I think people are overt uh, about that and doing it oftentimes intentionally. I wonder. I really do find myself wondering kind of the degree to which music is used that way. Um, uh, either intentionally, but in other areas, you know, that the degree to which people are, are kind of 
thinking about, well, how do I, what mood do I need to be in right now and how can I use music to help me get there? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is, oftentimes in literature and, and kind of the research that's out there, it's very much when it is measured, it's, mer- it's measured in a therapeutic setting. Uh, it's done, you know, in a randomized control trial to look after a, a, a surgery outcome, which is really important, um, but doesn't necessarily always capture this everyday stuff. I just saw, again, completely anecdotally, uh, but I saw this YouTube video of a little girl and she was playing uh, You Are My Sunshine and she was playing it on guitar and she must have been all of six or seven and she had her little brother with her who has Down syndrome and the little boy is singing and in the comments and in YouTube and the person who posted it, the mother is essentially saying that this is really the only time the little boy uh, is exhibiting any kind of major language use. Uh, so he's singing hmm. and the lyrics are really coming out, but otherwise is relatively nonverbal most of the rest of the time. And so that kind of everyday stuff you're not going to capture necessarily in some of the therapeutic and, and right. medical settings. And uh, But there's definitely something there, obviously. Right. You know, when we speak, when we think kind of more broadly than just the study, what else are some of the things that uh, we know about the relationship between music and health? So, yeah, I, I think this speaks to what I think we know a little bit more tends to be around what has been done in kind of a therapeutic or more of a uh, a medical setting. And so uh, music's been shown to do things like improve blood flow, uh, lower levels of stress hormones like cortisol have kind of a ameliorative effect on on some types of pain. So there's been studies to look at how people kind of rate their own pain when they're listening to calming music versus when they're not. Um, there's been a few different studies looking at, I mentioned kind of post-surgery outcomes of people who are listening to music, um, you know, during and after recovery and, and how that helps to um, kind of improve their outcomes. One of the ones that I really like, there's a study in 2016 that looked at meditation and they looked at listening to music um, and how those worked for kind of uh, boosting mood and well-being and they were linked both of them to mood improvements and improved sleep quality Uh, and so this idea that music has an effect not just kind of in modulating our emotions on a day-to-day but it also can really have some you know, real effects when it comes to being similar to something like meditation and reducing stress. It seems to have been shown in a lot of different areas and different cultural contexts. And one of the best things about music is that it really does span pretty much every culture out there. And so when you're starting to see that this is something that's connecting everyone universally and these studies are being done everywhere from the U.S. to Africa to Finland um, and to countries in Asia, you start to see commonalities across a lot of these findings. Wow, that's really fascinating. And I hadn't really thought about that, the sort of broader cultural cultural piece as well. Um, and, and, and I guess... I want to go back to something we talked about at the beginning, too, or the study you mentioned at the beginning. I'm curious to know more about the, the subway study that kind of launched your or some of your interest in this. Do you tell me more about that, what you found? Yes, yeah, the subway study was – this was really before I had 
started looking at the sociology of health and illness. So I wasn't really thinking about kind of the institutions and the everyday practices and how we as groups affect one another's well-being. Um, and so I was really just trying to think through uh, this initial research question of if you're a musician in a world where it can be very hard to be a musician, how do you carve out legitimacy for yourself? And I was taking the subway every day. Uh, I lived in Brooklyn for a while, and then I lived on the Upper East Side in Manhattan, and I was taking the subway every day to go to school, and I would come out into uh, the 14th Street Union Square stop, and there would always be a different musician. But over time, I started to see that there were musicians on certain days, some of them had signs in front of them that kind of showed that they were a part of the Union Square subway group, and so there was almost this kind of legitimation that they had behind them. And what I ended up wanting to do was to say, how do all these different musicians in a city of millions and millions of people decide who gets what space, and there are better spaces where you can make more money, and and are they constantly battling over territory and warring over it all the time? And I ended up really learning that uh, no, in fact, there were some very set ways of developing territory and, you know, you kind of showed that you had the chops and that you were making decent money as a musician and then you could actually go to an association uh, with the MTA, which ran where people were allowed to set up um, and allowed people to have different time slots and things like that. So there was a much more kind of rigid institutional way of managing and organizing musicians in the New York subways uh, than I ever would have imagined. And I found this out just by kind of digging through and doing a lot of interviewing. Wow. I I never would have imagined that either. I guess and this is one of the things I love talking to to, to researchers is I, I would I never would have had that question in the first place. And so um but you're right. It's really an interesting question, and then to hear the answer is is super surprising. So, well, part of it again that came derived from my own personal curiosity, not just from a research standpoint, but I was uh, I was working at the time, but I was living in New York, and I had very little money, um, and I had studied abroad over in Madrid. And I would occasionally go and play guitar, like, in the subways in Madrid. I was never really making any money. Um, but I had wondered, wow, I wonder if this is some kind of viable option, if I could go play in the subways or get together. I was playing in bands at the time, get together some other musicians and, like, make some side money while I'm going to school. And then I wondered, okay, how hard is that? And would I be stepping on toes if I tried to do that? And that's what kind of brought me to that question. Now, I never ended up going and playing in the subways because I was too busy studying and interviewing other right. subway musicians. But it was it was kind of a financial question uh, to, to begin with, for sure. Right. So before, I want to pivot and talk to, about some of your other kind of recent work, not, not related to music specifically. But before we get there, what suggestions do you have for people when it comes to music and health? Uh, what do you mean by suggestions? Well, ba based on any of the, the research you've either done or reviewed, are there things you would tell our, you know, our typical listener is not a psychologist and not a researcher necessarily, but just someone who's interested in psych. What, do you have advice for people on how they can better use music? 
Yeah, I think people should kind of lean into this feeling that you and I were talking about just before, which is kind of like when you feel like you need music, uh, when you feel like you got to turn that radio dial up or you have to, you know, uh, switch to a different playlist to get you kind of on the level that you're trying to get at, um, to really feel like this is, this is a universal thing that a lot of people feel and that the more research that's being done, shows that music is a key cultural part of a lot of people's identity. And so, you know, feel free to use this as a cheap, inexpensive, uh, easy-to-access tool, especially these days that if you're feeling, uh, you know, down or you're feeling stressed out, that music can be a very viable way of, of modulating some of that, whether you're playing or listening or just belting it out in the shower, whatever it is. It seems that even on this day-to-day kind of basis, completely non-therapeutic, not in a hospital or a music therapy center, uh, that this has some effect for people. And so to definitely lean into whatever the musician is inside of you. I love that advice. That is really That would be, cool. yeah, that's, that's the best I got. <laughs> no, that is, that is fabulous. So I want to, you mentioned this to me, uh, in an email already, but, and, and it's obvious in looking at your, uh, your CV, you've, it looks like you've pivoted a little bit towards some other areas of research. You want to take some time to tell our listeners about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so the music stuff is still very close to, to my heart and also close to my, you know, kind of academic interests. Uh, but in grad school, I did pivot away from music a little bit just because, uh, I was starting to study some other things, especially around violence, and then I was continuing to look at a lot of different issues of, of both mental and physical health. And so I've actually been doing a lot of work, and especially here at Rutgers, uh, around the criminal justice system and the relationship between uh, health and crime. So one of the big things that I've looked at more recently is thinking about uh, gun violence, violence and exposure to violence has a lot of really negative health outcomes for individuals and for communities. Uh, there's a lot of research to show that if you go into communities with high levels of, of gun violence, uh, you know, in cities in the United States, you see a lot of the same kind of symptoms that you would in groups with PTSD. Um, and you see a lot of people who are experiencing a lot of trauma, trauma, excuse me, as uh, a result of being exposed to this kind of violence. And so what my colleagues and I have been working on just over the last year or so, uh, we have a gun violence research center right here at Rutgers uh, trying to understand the relationship between places where you can go and buy legal guns and how, what that does in terms of how it affects different types of homicide and, and violent outcomes like intimate partner homicide, you know, if it's easier to go buy a gun, if there are more legal gun stores uh, around the area, does that impact these kind of things? And, and we're finding very much so that depending on how you ask the question, uh, legal gun stores can really increase that risk. So that's one part of uh, the research I've been doing. I've also been looking at how being incarcerated or having family members incarcerated, how that affects different elements of people's mental and physical health, and there's a lot of research that's kind of starting to build out there as well. So I've been in a couple different areas, but all around issues of, of violence and health. Wow, that is uh, really important work, and I'm glad you're doing it. Um, thank, thank you for you. that. 
As we finish up here, is there anything else you want people to know uh, about your current research, about um, music, anything? Anything? Um, no, I, I'm always very happy to kind of collaborate and work with people. So if people are listening to this and they have a cool research idea, they want to reach out and work together on something, um, or they just want to know more, I, I try to be as available and open as possible. Um, to, to new ideas, whether it's music or, or more on the, the crime and uh, health side. So just very open right. to, to talking. And also, I know that you're at Green Bay, and I'm a huge Green Bay Packer fan, actually, so I just wanted really? to uh, shout out to that as well. Yeah, I'll be in Green Bay in a few weeks for for the Raiders game, actually, to cheer on the Packers. Really? Yeah. So I have to ask, why why the Packers? Where did that come from? Are you from the area? <laughs> No, not at all. My uh, my so Vince Lombardi, he was at Fordham, uh, okay. and originally, and my my family's from kind of Westchester, New York City area, and so my grandfather kind of was watching him come up out of Fordham, and then he he taught in a high school in New Jersey for a while before moving into the pros. So they kind of followed him on to there, and then it passed down to my dad, who really loved the green and the gold, and then it passed on. To us and we, uh, my brothers and I, myself especially, were around for the Favre era, and so we've been very privileged to kind of have some some great quarterbacks and great teams. And so we've just right. always been Packer fans and never made it out to Lambeau until this year. Where my whole family's going for my dad's 60th birthday, so we're very excited. Okay. Very nice. Well, that is very cool. I've actually so I went to Southern Miss for grad school, so I've been following Brett Favre around. Uh, and I'm from Minnesota, so I've been following Brett oh, okay. for much of his career. But, mm-hmm. um, very nice. Well, well, good. So, um, well, I can't thank you enough for um, for taking the time to talk with me. Is it, as far as people finding you, is it um, best to do it? Uh, just go to the Rutgers website and, and hunt for you there. Or are you anywhere else that people might uh, might be able to find you? Yeah, I'm on, yeah, Twitter for sure. Twitter's a good way. People can reach out to me or tweet me or DM me, whatever. Um, what's your, what's your handle on Twitter for people if they're? Sure, it's dsemenscrim, D-S-E-M-E-N-Z, crim, C-R-I-M. Uh, so that's my handle. And then danielcsemenza.com is my website. And of course, people can go on the Rucker site as well. So, uh, yeah, my email is all over the place too, so people can get me there. Perfect. Great. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was a you pleasure. Bet. Anytime. And that's going to do it for this episode. Special thanks to our guests. First, my son. Thank you very much. Also, thanks to Dr. Daniel Semenza, Assistant Professor of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminal Justice, and Packer fan. You can find out more about him at his website, www.danielcsemenza.com. For our next episode, we are going to talk with an English professor I work with here at UW-Green Bay about her recent TEDx talk on school violence. Until then, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Psych and Stuff, or follow me on Twitter at RyCMart, R-Y-C-M-A-R-T. Go there for additional information about psychology, ask questions, or even suggest an episode. I also want to thank our producer, Kate Farley, who does all the things, and our podcast artist, Kimberly Vlees. Kimberly just designed our amazing Cannonball podcast art. I love it, and I love working with people like Kimberly. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep being amazing. Amazing.